This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once again to the program. I'd like to open today with a story from the book the Healing Power of Mind by Tuku Tombuk Tondup, a refugee lama in the Nyingma tradition, now living in the United States. He's been a visiting scholar at Harvard University and has written many books. The story takes place as Tuku Tondup and his friends arrived in India after escaping from the communist Chinese in Tibet. He and his friends were tired and had stopped on a hill to make tea as they didn't have money to buy food. He writes... I went to find some rocks and wood to use as a stove. When I reached the other side of the hill, I caught sight of an old monk with a big face and small shining eyes, probably in his late seventies or early eighties. By his round face and high cheekbones, I recognized him as a lama from Mongolia. He was sitting in a very small room in the back of an old house with his door and window wide open. The size of the room might have been eight feet by eight feet. In that same little room, he meditated, read, cooked and slept and talked with people sitting cross-legged on the same bed the whole day. He had a small altar with a few religious objects and scriptures on a little shelf on the wall. At his bedside was a very tiny dining table that was also his study desk. Near the table was a small charcoal stove on which he was cooking a meal for himself. His face broke into a kind and joyful smile as he asked me, What are you looking for? I said, We just got here and I'm looking for some fuel and materials for a stove to make tea. In a soothing voice he said, There's not much to eat, but would you like to join me to share the meal I'm preparing? I thanked him, but declined. My friends were waiting. Then he said, Then wait a minute. I'll finish cooking and you can borrow my stove. There's still enough charcoal in it for you to make tea. I was stunned by what I saw. He was very old, and it seemed as if he could be having a hard time taking care of himself. Nevertheless, his tiny eyes were full of kindness. His graceful and dignified features were full of joy. His open heart was full of eagerness to share, and his mind was peaceful. He was talking to me as an old friend, or they had just seen me for the first time. A kind of tingling sensation of happiness, peace, joy and amazement went through my body. I felt that because of his mental nature and spiritual strength, he shone as one of the richest and happiest people in the world. Yet in terms of the materialist world, he was homeless, jobless, hopeless. He had no savings, no income, no family support, no social benefits, no government support, no country, no future. Above all, as a person who was a refugee in a foreign country, 
He could hardly even communicate with the local people. Even today, when I remember him, I can't help but shake my head in amazement and celebrate in my heart for what he was. I would like to add that he's not the only person of that nature that I've seen. There are many simple but great beings. Now, Tulkutondop doesn't mention Bodhicitta, but his story seemed to embody the compassion and loving kindness that characterize somebody with that great quality. What impresses me about the story is not that the old man was willing to lend his stove to the travelers, but the author's description of him and the reaction he provoked in Tulkutondop. He was very old, and it seemed as if he could be having a hard time taking care of himself. Nevertheless, his tiny eyes were full of kindness, his graceful and dignified features were full of joy, his open heart was full of eagerness to share, and his mind was peaceful. He was talking to me as an old friend, although he had just seen me for the first time. A kind of tingling sensation of happiness, peace, joy and amazement went through my body. I felt that because of his mental nature and spiritual strength, he shone as one of the richest and happiest people in the world. Now, of course, bodhisattvas can appear in many ways, like stern or even wrathful, and we can't really say who has developed bodhicitta. But if you think of a kind of a bodhisattva stereotype, wouldn't this old man perhaps fit it? And the thought that occurred to me after I read the story was, wow, I hope I'm like that in my 70s and 80s, if I live that long. In any case, whether the old man was a bodhisattva or not, or even whether he struck you as one, doesn't really matter. I thought the story was a wonderful way to start the program and set the scene for our discussion today. So, with a shining example of the old Mongolian in mind, let's set our motivation for being part of the program. As usual, please make bodhicitta your motivation if you can. That is, the intention to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. But if you really find that out of your league, then at least motivate for your own swift liberation from all suffering. Thank you. So we're now on the ninth of ten benefits, which Tebton Children lists as quickly completing all the realizations of the path to enlightenment. She writes, Bodhicitta is the primary motivation for entering the Mahayana, which is the path to Buddhahood. It is the primary thing that makes us create so much positive potential or merit so quickly. It enriches our wisdom because we are so motivated to meditate. So, of course, all of the realizations of the path are going to flow into our mind very quickly. It only follows very naturally from there. In other words, due to the mind of bodhicitta, we create a lot of positive potential very quickly. That's because bodhicitta is focused on so many beings in fact, an uncountable number of beings. The intention is not only to benefit one or two beings we feel close to, but all beings everywhere, even if they regard us as enemies or as food. Because the object of our intention is so vast, the positive potential is also vast, and that enables us to meditate on wisdom with much greater ease than someone who only works for their own welfare. The realizations therefore come quickly and easily. Then the tenth advantage of bodhicitta is that we will become a source of comfort and happiness for all sentient beings. Says Tupton Chodron, That's a nice thought, to think my existence, or the thoughts in my mind, 
can be a source of comfort and happiness for other sentient beings. For example, just even knowing that there is a human being like the Dalai Lama, even though you never met him, but maybe you read a book or you've seen him on TV. Does that give you some sense of comfort and happiness? Just that there is one living being who is like that. It gives us, wow, I can become like that. Wow, not everybody is corrupt. It's a real comfort for our own mind, and he provides such a positive example for us in our lives, even if we don't know him. You can see how if we follow in his footsteps and cultivate the same kinds of meditations that he did on our mind, then because cause and effect function, we can become that same kind of source of comfort and happiness for others. In a very enlightened teaching, Lama Zoparumshe, the spiritual director of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Maya and the Tradition, has this to say about how our bodhicitta benefits others. Your own holy mind of bodhicitta is the treasury of all merit, he writes. Of course, you can't relate the Buddhas of the three times to your own bodhicitta, but they all do come from the bodhicitta in general. Like numberless past, present and future Buddhas arose from Guru Shakyamuni Buddha's bodhicitta, not all, but numberless, you can relate to it like that. The happiness of numberless transmigrators dependent on change comes from your bodhicitta. The happiness of all migratory beings comes from bodhicitta in general. But with your bodhicitta, you can still bring much happiness. The happiness of this life, future lives, liberation and enlightenment to numberless centered beings. Your bodhicitta can cause numberless hell beings, numberless hungry ghosts, numberless animals, numberless humans, numberless suras, numberless asuras and numberless intermediate state beings to experience all happiness up to enlightenment. All that comes from your bodhicitta, is caused by your bodhicitta. You can even think very specifically. For example, your one person's bodhicitta causes numberless ants to experience all temporary and ultimate happiness up to enlightenment. Think how many ants you can find at just one spot, how many thousands there are in a nest under a rock. There's so many more in a field or on a mountain. There's no question how many more there are in one country. Like that, if you expand from one spot and think how many ants there are in this world, this universe, numberless universes, you can realize how many there are and how your bodhicitta brings them all happiness up to enlightenment. Think how your one person's bodhicitta brings all happiness to numberless other insects, numberless fish in the water, numberless shellfish on the rocks, on the pile supporting piers, in this world, in this universe, in numberless universes. If you think by elaborating in this way, the numbers of shellfish, for instance, are unbelievable, countless, and your bodhicitta, the bodhicitta of one person, you, can bring all happiness to all of them. It's incredible. Think of other sentient beings one by one. The worms in the ground, your bodhicitta brings all happiness to numberless worms. Caterpillars, those hairy ones that walk in such long, well-disciplined straight lines. Uncountable, numberless caterpillars in just one spot, let alone this universe, numberless universes. Your bodhicitta brings every happiness to them all. Or on a beach, there's so many tiny crabs. You can see them when the tide goes out. They make all these little holes in the sand, and when they come out looking for food, 
The seagulls try to eat them. Think how many there must be in this universe, in numberless universes. The bodhicitta of you, one person, can bring them all happiness up to enlightenment. Think how unbelievable that is. Even without thinking about the numberless hell beings, hungry ghosts, humans and so forth, but merely thinking about the different kinds of animal and how each type is numberless, it is incredible that your one person's bodhicitta can cause them to experience all happiness up to enlightenment. The bodhicitta of you, one person, can eradicate the defilements of each of the numberless animals, of whom even each type is numberless. Your bodhicitta can eradicate not only their suffering, but also their two types of defilement. It's unbelievable. There's so many different kinds of animal, and even in this world, each one is numberless. When you think how many there must be in numberless universes, and what one person's realization of bodhicitta, the good heart can do, how much benefit it can benefit others, it's really unbelievable. Think how many flies there must be. Even on one carpet, there are thousands upon thousands of tiny flies keeping themselves busy, and that's just on the ground. In the air, there are so many more. You don't notice them when the sun's not shining, but when it's out, you can see these huge clouds of fl flies in the air, uncountable numbers of tiny flies. From these few examples from the animal realm, just these few kinds of insects, you can understand how many suffering sentient beings there are. Now here I'm just talking about one spot on the ground, but you should think of this world, then of numberless universes, how many unimaginable numbers of sentient beings are suffering. Therefore, if you, one person, have bodhicitta, it can stop all their gross and subtle defilements and put an end to all their suffering. That's incredible. There are many animals, such as snakes, tigers, leopards and so forth, whose only food is other animals. They don't eat plants. They don't live on potatoes or carrots. They don't grow vegetables. All they eat is other sentient beings. Snakes eat mice, frogs and so forth. There are many sentient beings whose only food is other sentient beings, who, due to karma, depend on killing others for their very survival. If you keep such animals as pets, you have to feed them other sentient beings. For them, not eating others is suffering, because they can't survive in any other way, and killing others is also suffering, since by harming others they create negative karma. Tigers in zoos, for example, have to be fed goats, and anyway, there are many sentient beings like this. A while back in Singapore, where we frequently liberate many animals, frogs, fish and so forth, we bought five snakes from a restaurant in order to liberate them. When we opened the sack they were in, they couldn't crawl away immediately because they'd been sedated. It was as if they were drunk or on drugs. The thought came, if we release them, they'll eat mice. But if we hadn't freed them, they'd have become the restaurant's evening special. Either way, it's a problem. What we have to do is to free them from samsara. That's the only solution. Free them from delusion and karma. Until that happens, either mode of existence in, in samsara, killing others or not killing others, is a problem. The only solution is to free them from samsara. That's Lama Zoparimshe. And so it seems, developing bodhicitta the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment to help all other sentient beings, and especially to free them from samsara, 
becomes indispensable. In fact, Tipton Children says it's our, own, our one true friend and refuge. If you are ever lonely, look for a friend of Bodhicitta, she says. What do we usually do when we are lonely? Take our usual three refuges, the refrigerator, the TV and the shopping center, or microwave popcorn. Does the microwave popcorn fill the hole in your heart, she asks. No, it fills our stomach. It makes our belly expand. But when we are lonely, there's this feeling of emptiness in the heart. Does the popcorn fill it? No. When you're lonely and you plop yourself down in front of the tube and you're doing your channel surfing, does that fill the emptiness in the heart? No. When you go to the shopping center and buy something that you don't need and can't afford, or even if you need it and can't afford it, does it fill the emptiness in the heart? It doesn't, does it? When we are lonely, we use totally the wrong strategies to deal with our loneliness. We make ourselves fat, bored and broke, and we are still lonely. Bodhicitta is a real friend. If when we are lonely we sit down and do the meditations on Bodhicitta and we reflect on the kindness of sentient beings, we reflect on everything they have done for us throughout this life and throughout all our beginnings' previous lives. We reflect that everything we have and do and are is dependent on others and what they have done for us. Then this feeling of connection automatically comes in the heart, doesn't it? And when there is this feeling of connection with sentient beings, we're not lonely anymore. Often when we're lonely, we're so involved in spinning around me, aren't we? Have you noticed that? Oh, I'm so lonely. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. Poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me, poor me. We do our malas of poor me's. Then we do a mala of nobody loves me, nobody loves me, nobody loves me. That way of thinking makes us more lonely, doesn't it? That's because we're concentrated with single-pointed intention on how lonely we are. So, of course, we make ourselves more lonely. That loneliness gets created and amplified in the mind and just accelerated. If we do the meditations on bodhicitta, we start meditating on equanimity or the kindness of others, or if you do the metta-meditation, generating love for others, or we do taking and giving, any of the bodhicitta meditations, then automatically our heart is open and expanded towards others. That's the direct opposite of the feeling of loneliness, isn't it? So bodhicitta becomes our real friend. It's the thing that really conquers our loneliness. Sometimes we're really silly, so we feel lonely and we say, Oh, bodhicitta is supposed to conquer my loneliness. So we say, Okay, Buddha, you have bodhicitta. Do something with my loneliness. Make it go away. As if Buddha is going to take out his magic wand and go, Boing! I mean, wouldn't that be nice? But you know, Buddha doesn't have a magic wand. Or actually, I should say that Buddha's magic wand is the teachings on bodhicitta, which we have received. So then it's time for us to contemplate them and integrate them into our hearts. And that's Tupton Chodron. I've been rereading the book Thoughts Without a Thinker by Mark Epstein, a psychiatrist who tries to integrate the Buddhist teachings with psychoanalysis. He wrote the book in 1996, and the discussion between these two disciplines has progressed much beyond what it was then. However, he talks about our suffering as involving a kind of inevitable humiliation, being subject to decay, old age and death, disappointment, disease and loss. We nevertheless keep up, and I quote, a futile struggle to maintain ourselves in our own image. Decay, old age, death, 
disappointment, de- disease and loss are the humiliations of our life and are affronts to the inherent narcissism that comes from our conviction in a real self. Buddhist meditation, Epstein claims, is an attempt to break through and expose this narcissism in its very haunt. Birth, old age, sickness and death are distasteful, not just because they are painful, but also because they are humiliating, writes Epstein. They violate our self-regard and are blows to our narcissism. He says that not willing to admit our lack of substance to ourselves, we project an image of completeness or self-sufficiency. However, the more we do that, the more we estranged we become from our real selves, or rather, the way we really exist. It strikes me that bodhicitta, with its focus on the benefit of others, provides an excellent basis from which to counter this narcissistic tendency. In fact, Tibetan Buddhism often couples relative and ultimate bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta being the wish to attain enlightenment for all sentient beings, and ultimate bodhicitta being the experiential understanding of the nature of reality, in other words, emptiness. While ultimate bodhicitta is what thoroughly destroys our narcissism, as it were, it is greatly assisted by the intention embodied in relative bodhicitta. And as the teachings point out, Relative bodhicitta is necessary to eliminate the subtle imprints left on the mind after the realization of our ultimate nature has been internalized. Tupton Children contemplates the importance of our realizations of the nature of reality at the time of death and shows how bodhicitta, relaxing our narcissistic tendencies, helps us in gaining those realizations. She says, At the time we die, it is our level of wisdom whether we are in touch with the nature of reality, that is important, isn't it? Whether you know the current stock market rates is not important when you die. Whether we know the nature of reality, or whether we have trained our mind in contemplating impermanence and emptiness and things like that, that's very valuable when we die. Bodhicitta is something that energizes us to do those wisdom contemplations. We can see this attitude of bodhicitta is what makes our life meaningful. Whether we've developed bodhicitta to the fullest extent is not the issue. Just even having a tinge of bodhicitta in our hearts, even having cultivated it once, even if we forget it afterwards, something has changed inside and that becomes very valuable. Imagine when you get to the time of death, you can die with a feeling of contentment about your life and a feeling of how fortunate you've been to have heard these teachings on bodhicitta. Knowing that it's time to leave this life now, I pray that in my future life I'm born in a place and in a time where I can meet somebody who will teach me about bodhicitta, where I can take the bodhisattva vows, where I can continue this practice and dedicate all the merit that I've accumulated in my life through the power of this compassionate thought for the benefit of all living beings. Imagine having that kind of thought in our mind when we die. It would be nice, wouldn't it? having our mind so well trained in compassion that when we die there's no regret, there's no fear, there's a feeling of rejoicing, a feeling of fulfillment, a feeling of trust. When we do the bodhicitta meditations and see the kindness of others, we begin to trust them more. We stop being so self-centered and worrying neurotically about ourselves. This enables us when we die. We just go, let go on to the next life. It's not a big sweat. Whereas you can see that without bodhicitta, dying is is total chaos, isn't it? 
It's like, ooh, I'm separating from my body. What am I going to be if I don't have this body? And I'm separating from everybody I love, so who's going to help me? I'm separating from my whole ego identity, so who am I going to be? And my life is so full of regret because of what I've done. I have so many wrecked relationships in the past because I've been so mean to people and angry with them, and I feel how all that is weighing on my heart, and I can't even apologize. We can see that by training our minds in bodhicitta, now we're preparing. We make our own life happy now, and when the time comes to die, no problem, we just let go. My teacher used to give the example of when a bird is on a ship and starts to fly. It just takes off and flies over the water. You know it's not looking back at the ship saying, I want that ship. It just takes off and goes. I think that it would be so nice when we die to do it like that. No big trip. What I'm getting at is that by cultivating this altruistic intention, we're giving the ability to have a meaningful life, and then we are able to relax at the time of death. So if this is something that's appealing for us, we should meditate on bodhicitta now. We should try to develop it now. We don't wait until five minutes before you die to try to do it. What were those teachings I heard 20 years ago? Mm, what is a bodhicitta? What am I supposed to do now? That's Tupton children. But I don't know that we will necessarily die in chaos if we don't have bodhicitta. Many people who don't know the Buddhist teachings have died peacefully and seemingly without regret. But we can see that with bodhicitta, the dying process could be that much easier. Lama Zoparamshe recommends doing the practice called Tonglen at death time because it's driven by bodhicitta. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls this practice a self-supporting death. Tonglen means giving and taking, or sometimes sending and taking. And in the practice, you take on others' suffering and give them all your happiness. You can see it's actually taking and giving. But here is Tonggu Rinpoche's description. Tonglen, he says, is a meditation done in conjunction with one's breathing and in relation to one's parents, friends and enemies, to all beings gathered around oneself. As one breathes out, imagine that with the exhalation out goes all one's happiness and all the causes of happiness, all the good karma that one has in the form of white light rays. These light rays go out to all beings to touch them, so that they obtain present temporary happiness and the cause for ultimate happiness of Buddhahood. With inhalation, one imagines that all the suffering, the causes of suffering and the bad karma that beings have are drawn into oneself with the incoming breath in the form of black ray light rays. These black rays enter and merge into oneself, so one thinks that one has taken on the suffering of all other beings. Thus, this sending and taking meditation involves giving away happiness and taking on suffering in combination with one's breathing. In doing this meditation, he says, one changes the attitude of seeing oneself as more important than other beings. One will come to consider others as more important than oneself. Normally, he says, people think it doesn't matter if others are unhappy or suffering, so long as oneself is happy and free of suffering. We take care of ourselves first, seeing ourselves as more important than others. Tong Len changes this attitude so that others' happiness and freedom from suffering become more important. Thus one develops the attitude that one is able to take on the suffering of other beings. So you can see that if you are not concentrating only on your own dire predicament at death time, but are concerned for the welfare of all others, 
your mind will be much more peaceful and calm, and death may not be so bad. And with that we must part as time is up. Thanks for joining the program today, and please dedicate all positive potential to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.